the story of our founding is an artist named David Craven died. His wife had spent her whole life working in the genetics lab at Bellevue. She inherited 400 paintings. She knew that her husband was an artist because she had gone to dinners and so on and so forth. <laughs> but that's about all she knew about the art world. Really? She was that sort of disconnected from that part of his life? Yeah. Wow. In terms of his business and so on, he, yeah. she knew his dealers and she knew all the complaints he had about the world. Right, <laughs> right. right. And her biggest fear was, because there is a market value to his work, that her heirs would end up with a tax bill. So she was going to put it all in a dumpster. Really? Yeah. Amazing. She came to me and said, possibly she'd give away some works to friends and so on and so forth. And I said, what are you going to do with the rest of it? And she said, we're going to throw it away. And I went, no. And I called Mary Dienberg, who's one of my partners, who had actually sold work for this artist in the 90s, and said, we've got a situation. And a couple of weeks later, Mary came to me and said, we've got a business. That's Saul Ostro, a critic, curator, and a principal of art legacy planning, which is part of the growing world of artist estate planning. The story he just told was what propelled him into the field. So on this episode of Art Movements, we're talking to Saul and Jason Andrew, a partner of Artist Estate Studio. Both of them are on the front lines of helping artists and their loved ones decide what to do with their work after they pass away. I'm, let's say, the son of an artist, just passed away. I have this garage full of paintings and sculptures. I'm going to call you up. What are you going to tell me first thing? First thing, we're going to discuss the question, do you have an inventory? Do we know what is actually in your possession? The second thing we'll talk about is if there was a career or not, and what was the nature of that career. From there, we start dealing with an analysis, a sort of scope, what's doable, everything from questions of licensing, all going to the nature of the work, and copyright issues and IP issues, to basically, okay, the best we can do is start a plan of donating works. So when you say copyright, what does that mean? Who owns the copyright? Yeah. By default, the artist owns the copyright. Okay. But things that are sold, often people think the copyright transfers with it. And that's not true. You, the artist, and potentially the artist's heirs, have the copyright on all imagery, all works, sold or unsold. Got it. So now, Jason, you probably have a similar, what's usually the scenario people are approaching you about this? I think very similar to Saul, and I think our tack would be very, very similar. I mean, look, you're dealing with the life and the legacy of an, of an artist's work, and you're dealing with works. Mm -hmm. You're also, I mean, I think there's also a great sense of, and I think Saul and, and other of us in the field are very concerned, or at least I am as well, and our Artist Estate Studio is very concerned about the intent. What did the artist intend to do with this work? What does the intent here mean? Does it mean like, did the artist not want the work sold? Did they want it to like end up somewhere? Like, what do you mean? Well, I mean, there's, uh, there's a couple of different scenarios. I mean, what did the artist intend for their work? I mean, painters obviously have a body of work that is tangible. There are also video artists that have mm -hmm. work that's maybe might not be, that's time-based. 
there's all of that stuff that's all wrapped into the legacy or and the promotion of the artist's work after they after they die. Right. So it, in in most cases, what we're hoping for is what was there a will? What did the artist state in their will? And you know, this has become quite a controversial subject on many many levels across all their artistic disciplines. But what do most of the wills say, Jason? What are you finding? <laughs> and I'll ask you the same question, Saul. Like, do most artists have wills? I think most artists know they should have wills, okay. but do they have a do they have a will? <laughs> you know, the, when you're dealing with the will and you're dealing with the intimacy of working with an artist's legacy, you're also dealing with family and you're dealing with emotions. Right. And some artists, while they're alive, don't want to state that they don't want this material to be handled by their eldest son or their youngest daughter. It says that, that sometimes? Well, wow. that prevents them from writing a will. Oh. And so, you know, it becomes interesting. I mean, if you think about <laughs> most recently. To say the least. I mean, the Washington Post just, just came out with another article kind of coming at the Balanchine Trust. I mean, Balanchine, right. towards the end of his life, he didn't want to write a will. And they basically, in order for him to try to protect what legacy he thought he would have, he wasn't sure his ballets would last longer right. than himself. So for those and who so, don't know, George Balanchine was the choreographer and great ballet, modernist ballet. Um, the founder of New York City Ballet. That's right. And so what he did was he found a group of people and he designated ballets to a, a group of people and they were the heirs of those ballets. Wow. I think there's a common conception here that the New York City Ballet inherited all of the ballets, and they did not. They didn't inherit a single one. Wow. So then you're dealing with how do you deal with a body of an artist's work that's being represented by five or six, eight, nine, ten different heirs. It can get very complex. Right. So now, Saul, how about you? In all actuality, what we good portion of what we do at Artist Legacy is advise people before they're dead. So oh, okay. we're not dealing with always dealing with estates. We're dealing literally planning an estate. So people should come to you before they pass away. This is the yeah, this is yeah the, because this is to a certain degree what Jason's talking about. You go to a lawyer, and the lawyer who has little or no idea about art but knows you're an artist deals with your estate as if it's about the disposition of property. Right. So there's no difference between getting rid of your car and getting rid of the content of your studio. Right. What we advise everybody that we work with is that an artist has two estates. There's the personal estate, the house, the, the property, the bank account, so on and so forth. Right. And then there's the studio or the artistic estate. And this has to be considered differently. And this is a, where intention comes in. This is where you basically go... The executor for your personal estate is not going to be the same executor for your studio estate. Got it. Somebody needs to know the business. Somebody needs to know your career. Somebody needs to know your work. So now how open are artists to hearing that? Some of them panic, and some of them (laughs) realize that they don't know anybody who they can make executor. (laughs) Ouch. Ouch. A lot of soul searching. Yeah, there's a lot of soul searching. Then there is the question of intention. We We just signed a client. It's an estate. It's in Houston. The artist had a very promising career, 60s, 70s, went to Yale with Chuck and Bryce and everybody was the youngest artist in the Primary Structure Show at the Jewish Museum. Ref- Very important show, of course. Yeah, yeah. References to him by, you know, in articles by Lucy Lippard. You know, people right. like Klaus Curtis and, and Bellamy are looking at his work. 
he's in group shows, doesn't quite get a one-person show, and then decides to go to Maryland to teach and never comes back to that career. Got it. And decided, basically, painted all his life and decided that he really didn't want to sell anything. Wow. So there's 180 paintings in storage. His widow, on the other hand, now has decided that he should have the career that he denied himself. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you do? We're setting up a plan because some of the work is donatable or even saleable because of the narrative behind it. Right. And they're probably really good, I'm guessing. Uh, And she basically just wants the work posited with reputable institutions and collections. Great. So does that make your life easier? I don't know. I'm flying out to Houston in May. (laughs) So on paper, it looks very easy. Yeah, it looks great. Now, what is the biggest challenge when dealing with an artist estate, in your opinion? The stereotype is it's always like the children, you know, that are always the ones that are the biggest issue. Now, are there other issues? Well, I'm, I come to this as, you know, I didn't go to school to do the business that I do. I Does anyone? Yeah, there's there, there are definitely, <laughs> I mean, there are definitely institutes being set up where got you it. can go and you can become, an, you know, an advisor, an estate planner. My introduction to this came through the, the estate of Jack Twerkoff. I had right. worked in a gallery and became very friendly with the daughter of Jack Twerkoff. So Jack Twerkoff, the first generation abstract expressionist painter here in New York. And so I, I knew that, um, that there was more to his biography, and I was able to gain the confidence of the family. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you load as many boxes, archival boxes as you can in the back of your Honda Civic, and you process that, and you build this relationship. <laughs> I have had some instances where it becomes problematic, mostly with living artists, right. um, where living artists don't want to talk about their legacy. And that becomes a challenge, too. I mean, their primary job is to be making work and spending time in the studio. Mm -hmm. They don't want to talk about, oh, can you help me date this painting from 1982? So the more that you develop a rapport and confidence within an artist, a living artist working in their studio, you're able to get around those situations. But I do feel like that's the most difficult thing that I've encountered so far, is working with a living artist who's, who's very prolific and still making work but then calling attention to their archive. Is it because you think that they feel like they're confronting death when they're talking to you about this? Is that what I the would, issue is? I would definitely feel that way. Yeah. But then there are some artists who would just embrace that whole process. Like, I want to make sure all of my work is signed. I have these drawings oh, wow. that I've done in the past, and they're not signed drawings. And, you know, so th- you're, you're trying to, you're advocating on behalf of them while they're standing in front of you in some well, ways. Talking about the signature part, you know, I was talking to a colleague this weekend, and he had mentioned to me that Felix Gonzalez Torres had their estate after he passed away. The state sort of made these decisions what was art and what wasn't art. Do you know, posthumously? Well, that goes back to the artist intent. I mean, right. if, as best you can, surround yourself with people who are educated in your person and right. in, in your thoughts. But, you know, those decisions sometimes are not done with the artist's intent. Is that correct? Oh, yes. I mean, that happens just, yeah. it just happens. Well, we're, we're happening with the Robert Indiana case right now, where there's a huge push that said Robert would have never... Right. He never would have authorized these kinds of multiples, and that right. multiples were being made and invented beyond his own personal conception of them. Right, right. So Robert Indiana, the pop artist. And I think there was a case of a company 
Wasn't That's, it? That did an image based on It's his actually, work. it was an entity that he was making his additions through. Right. And these two guys at the head of it decided that they were going to start making multiples of things that he never talked about. And they have text back and forth. Does this sound very good? This isn't consulting Robert. This isn't from the Indiana studio. Right. These are these fabricators developing these ideas on behalf of the artist. And it's being litigated right now what right. happens about right. that. Right, right. So how about you, Saul? What do you think? We've had trouble with widows, ex-wives, children. Jilted lovers? <laughs> they haven't, not yet, but we're, we're expecting it any, quite seriously. When we first started, one of the things we did was we went and interviewed a mediator. Hmm. So we have ever we need that we actually have a mediator that we can send them to because basically our lawyers suggested to us that we would never and we should never get in between. Right. right? Family arguments. Right. And, yeah. and but that it, sounds we, like we, hell. But also it wouldn't be in our interest to be perceived by one side as being favored by That's the right. you know, the other and so on. Once again, because in a lot of cases what you're dealing with or what we're dealing with is people who really don't know what their parents did. You know, I'm uh, sure that's more common than we realize, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, you know, earlier I wasn't joking when I said, you know, we had somebody come to us and go, my father showed with Jackson Pollock. Isn't there anything you can do for his career? And his father had been dead for 40 years. Right, right. <laughs> You're like, nope, can't and do anything. And there was the scrapbook and there was the storage unit full of paintings and there was the history. And he's an ad, you know, he's a leaf in Ad Reinhardt's tree. And right. No, it's you know it's not, it's not career right. by so Ad Ryan, so Ad <laughs> Reinhardt's tree that you mentioned is an illustration he did of like the modern art world in I think in the fifties he did yeah. that illustration and it's sort of like all these leafs that represent different characters that were showing at the time. Okay, well now how do you do a reality check in that situation? Because you know everyone thinks the artist in their family's work is worth a lot more than it probably is, I'm guessing, in most cases. So how do you reality check that? You know, we sit down, discuss it, explain to them as best possible for them to understand what's actually at stake, what can be done and what can't be done. And then in a lot of cases, basically go, we can't help you with that. Right. They want miracles. They want miracles. They want careers that never were to to blossom because they read an article about how artists are being rediscovered every right. day. As I said, you know, they have they were brought up on stories of affiliation, you know, daddy or mommy sat around drinking with de Kooning. Right. And they think that this makes for a career and and while the work work is worthy, too many factors, right? There's too many factors. Yeah. There's too many factors and you can't take people's money based on wishfulness. Yeah, and sometimes the media creates those perceptions. I remember a few years ago, there was an artist whose work was rediscovered or something in a, in a garage or something after they passed away. And people were like, it's millions of dollars worth of work. And you're like, according to who? Millions of dollars worth of work. Well, I, let's think about the positive side of this thing. Okay, okay. Jason's always positive. You know, <laughs> the great thing is that we're at an age, we're at a generation where we, I think everyone across the board can understand that art is a commodity, that right. art is valuable. Right. And something is always valuable to somebody. 
whatever it is. And I think that Saul has a good point about placement and, you know, affiliations. And I feel like, you know, moving forward, I feel it's important for everyone to sort of figure out as an artist while you're alive, like what your intent is going to be. What do you want to see happen with this work? Maybe there's a stash there that you did in the 20s that you don't want the world to see. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's stuff you really want people to see. I think I can tell this story. Can I tell a quick story? Please do. So um, one of the estates I manage is the estate of Janice Biala. And Mm -hmm. she was, for a time, for 10 years in the 30s, she was affiliated with Ford Maddox Ford, the English novelist. Yep. And there was a very intense correspondence when Ford would come to the United States and she would stay in France painting. There was an intense correspondence there. And while Janice, who became the executor of his estate, wanted Ford's writing to be what was remembered, not his relationships with women, which Mm -hmm. is notorious. Mm -hmm. And so on her deathbed, she said to her niece, please destroy these letters. Wow. And the niece picked up a lighter and said, you burn them yourself and she wouldn't burn them herself. So there's an artist, there's a perfect case of artist intent. While we knew what Biala wanted was that her relationship not to be, you know, used as a vehicle to sort of talk about Ford, but yet his, she wanted his writings to precede that. But I think that's a perfect example. So the, the, so the letters still exist. The letters exist and they're Cornell. So now, but this is a perfect example of intent because her intent was that they not be seen, but she wouldn't do it herself. That's right. So now where is intent in that? Where, where, where does that well, follow, you know? What do you do? They, they lived beyond her, and a decision was made that they should become part of her archive mm-hmm. and, and to tell her story. I mean, she died over 20 years ago. There's so, so many stories like that. Once when I was doing research on Jack Bush and his, uh, the Canadian painter and his relationship with Clement Greenberg, I wanted to see the correspondence. And, you know, I was able to find his whole correspondence to Clement Greenberg at the Archives of American Art, but his letters to Jack Bush were all destroyed and no one knows where they are. You know, and it's just like, you're like, what have we lost? This is insane. So now how about you, Saul? What are some of the scenarios so people can get a sense of, you know, what is at stake and how you actually navigate this? A lot of what we, once again, a lot of what we navigate is things like, as I said, if we're dealing with a living artist, it's getting them to write explicit instructions, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's other aspects of this other than just what does the world want to see. Big issue a lot is gifting. Work has actually a value. Have you gifted work to your children, friends, paramours, so on and so forth over the course of the years? And you've got to put that information on the back of the work. Oh, really? Or an affidavit someplace that this work has been gifted. Otherwise, you end up with, and this does happen, uh, I want the yellow one. Daddy said I could have the yellow one. Oh, where? Right. Right. <laughs> right, right. Where does it say that? Right. And anyway, the yellow ones are the most most saleable. <laughs> right. So now we're dealing with, let's say, let's have the scenario. You go into a garage and someone shows you 400 paintings of this artist who showed at, let's say, show in with Jackson Pollock. Let's use that as an example. Okay. Or there are all these possibilities. Now, what's the first thing you do? inventory correct yeah then you go to look up the art historical precedents or like the reviews i mean what what are you doing next provenance cv mm-hmm. narrative biographies okay right what is the story in terms of provenance which paintings were in what exhibitions got it okay things like that then you start with archives mm-hmm. what's in the artist's archives you know what letters are there 
What correspondence are there? Where are the invoices? <laughs> oh, wow. And how often do they actually have the invoices? N- not often. Got it. And it's scary. So you don't know which collections things are in. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I bet that's a huge, a huge issue. Works that have been gifted or traded. Right. The artist's collection, as opposed to literally works that the artist has traded with another artist that may or may not be part of the personal estate, but is part of the studio estate. Wait, I'm confused. Okay, Saul, explain that for us. Some artists retain work. They put it up in their studio. They don't take it home. It doesn't go on the living room wall. It's okay. not... So that wouldn't be their personal. You're saying that. So then the studio estate becomes totally separate. The premise that we work on is the contents of the studio is a totally separate estate. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. How about you, Jason? So what do you do? Does that sound familiar, what what Saul was saying? Oh, or, yeah. or do you have a different totally uh, sounds Totally sounds familiar. I think of it, we approach it in two different ways. There's preservation and then there's legacy. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about inventory mm-hmm. and you're talking about that becomes a preservation. You're trying to find out what the paintings, what the name of the painting, the size of the painting, the date of the painting. You're also trying to figure out the medium, the material that they were using because of authenticity down the road, perhaps. Okay. And then you're talking about the legacy. Okay, so how do the archives tie in? The letters, the group, the community that this artist associated with. So those are the, the two major approaches that I, I kind of gun for. I also, I usually try to take it all in at the same time. So mm. while you're feasting on inventorying these things, you're also <coughs> building, and I'm sure Saul does it too, you're building a registry of exhibitions with labels on the back of paintings. You're also dealing with you know, letters and correspondence that they may have had. So you know that this was a painting that they may have done when they were at the, I don't know, Academy in Rome in the right. 70s or something right. like that. So what's the biggest novice mistake, Jason, that you see happen again and again? when people are dealing with artist estates or when, you know, family members come to you or even artists come to you? I think that, I don't know if you can make a mistake. I don't know what kind of, oh, you mean so you mean forgiving. you mean about an artist, artist making a mistake? Yeah, no, meaning like that they're not, you know, writing down where works go or yeah. they don't yeah. know who the collector is that purchased that. I mean, I'm sure there are little things that feel really like, wow, talk about making your life harder. Yeah, I mean, I think a younger generation of artists are used to the idea of inventorying their work, or at least they should be. I think that there's now a class of artists, a generation, two or three generations of MFA students who know that documentation of their work is important. Mm. I do feel like there are some living artists that fall between the gaps there. I mean, we're talking about the internet age. We're talking about a generation of artists that don't use the computer and aren't going to write things down longhand in some in some instances. So, I mean, I think the biggest, the biggest, I think, if you want to call it a mistake or just something that's completely overlooked, but I think you also have to understand the intent of a living artist is to make as much shit as they can. Just get it going, get into the flow and make it, but then at the same time, figure out a way that you can document it when it leaves the studio. You know, even today, I'm surprised that a younger generation, a young artist, don't ask for a fucking consignment sheet. Excuse me. I mean, these if you value your art and you value and you value your a certain sense of who you are as an artist, then you can say that this work is going to be priced at a certain point, Mm -hmm. and you have a consignment sheet that says that Gallery ABC has the work. And then 
If Saul and I are lucky enough, 20 years from now, when you're not around, we find that consignment and we know we know more about the legacy of the artist. Have you ever come across an instance where you're sort of going through an artist's estates and something really funky seems to be going on? Like someone, some work seems to be going out and never coming back or you're like, there must be a whole body of work somewhere. Saul, you seem like you have a story oh, about this. Uh, no, it's exactly what Jason was talking about in terms of younger artists. I know somebody who's leaving their gallery and basically I, they were complaining that there seemed to be a painting or two missing. And I said, well, where's the consignment sheet? And he goes, what consignment sheet? Right. And painting could have been sold. Paint dealer might have decided that they deserved a dividend. <laughs> yeah. But basically the artist has absolutely no basis upon which to say that painting was here. Yeah, you know, I keep hearing stories of even artists, like we were talking about artists today. People would be like, yeah, you know, I found out my gallery sold that two years ago and I didn't find out until now. Or someone had sold a work to a museum and then all of a sudden, it wasn't until they asked the museum that they found out the work isn't there. You know, I mean, these are like weird scenarios, but I'm guessing this happens more often than we'd like to think. Yeah, I know somebody who a collector walked up to him and said, you know, we really, really enjoy your painting. Didn't know. The person had no idea. Idea that the painting had been sold to that collector. Wow. So what <laughs> what, what, is an, what should an artist do? Because you guys have to deal with the legacy of this, right? Oh, sorry, Jason, <laughs> go ahead. Well, I think what we try to do, what I try to do is to create the legacy of an artist as an autonomous figure. The artist himself, his or herself. And I think nowadays, and, and there was a time also, I mean, I deal with uh, some historic artists that, that relied on their galleries to do everything. Right. The gallery is going to be handling that. So, you know, case, in, case in point, Jack Twerkoff <laughs> kept everything. His sister, Janice Biala, kept everything. Letters, correspondence, rich, corris rich, just rich. Right. Yep. And... Um, you know, we were able to build on the legacy beyond just the artwork. You can mm -hmm. build on his communications and his teachings and his writings. Well, he was also an important figure at Black Mountain College and other places. So and, I mean, you know, yeah. chairman at Yale. Yeah, yeah you know, and, it's Yale. Just, and it's just not about the artwork. No. That's your point, yeah. Yeah, but then there's also, and I think, I hope I can say this. I'm going to say it. <laughs> to the benefit of the younger generation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> tack it up to that. Elizabeth Murray, on the other hand, when I became associated with working with you, mm -hmm. working with her, I said, where's the archive? I was expecting boxes and boxes of historic material of her very, you know, lustrous, prolific yeah. and yeah. lustrous, you know. And it became very clear to me that, well, you know, that was the case indeed. She relied on her galleries and she only had, she's only had two real big galleries. She had Paula Cooper mm -hmm. and she has Pace. And so it became my responsibility to form this relationship with both those galleries and rebuild an archive that wow. we can use. I use it daily. I use it when you post something on our Instagram account. But as soon as you said that, I kind of had this feeling of horror because what if that gallery went out of business? Oh, yes. And you know, and then what do you do? Because I mean, I'm guessing half the time those records go nowhere. I mean, is that what happens? Yeah, I mean, there's... Like, if Paula Cooper closed down in 1985, hypothetically, or whatever. Yeah. And, like, those files... That would be 10 years of Elizabeth's exhibitions. Right. We right. So, do you have, like, gaps like that show up when you're doing this, where you're like, wait a minute, we have no idea where that gallery's archives are or what's going on? Sure. Yeah? Well, I mean, like, dealing with Jack Twerkoff, Charles Egan. Charles right. Egan was one of the most prominent, you know, right. he was the first dealer to show all of the abex 
artists, abstract expressionists. Here in New York. And, yeah. you know, can we find a checklist? And there's none. There's nothing. Nothing. There's, there's nothing there. So we've you know? just lost that part of art history. Well, yeah, yeah pretty much. Yeah. I mean, now now galleries document installation shots. Wouldn't it be great to see an installation shot? I mean, when Sydney, did that start Sydney Janice started really doing the installation shots. Oh, is that when it started? Sydney Janice, you think, is probably the first, the Ch Sydney Janice Gallery. Yeah. Right, which I is mean, another New York gallery in Midtown. And that you think they were probably one of the Sydney first. Sydney Janice in the 50s, right. and then Leo Castelli. And you're thinking about the art market, mm -hmm. and you think about the trajectory of the art market, you you can look back to some of those artists. And then Paula Cooper, who she documented all of her installation shots. They're all in black and white. So right. if the painting was conceptual, forget it. But at least you <laughs> at least you have the beauty of seeing those beautiful black and white photos of her, you know, the wooden floors in Soho on Wooster Street. <laughs> <laughs> so how about you, Saul? What do you think? Well, I mean, in a lot of cases, a lot of a lot of the artists that we work with don't have the reputations of Jack Twerglove and so on right. and so forth. Uh, the construction of the archive is less art historical and much more about being able to build a context for the work. Mm-hmm. Especially if we think that something can actually be done to build the legacy, reinforce it, you know, advance it in terms of, as I said, donations or even seeking exhibitions for the estate and things like that. That correspondence, that ability to contextualize a lesser known artist becomes really important, mm -hmm. and especially to a dealer. So how open are museums to accepting gifts from these estates or galleries wanting to show them? I mean, like, it doesn't seem like it would be easy. It's not easy. But in a lot of cases, smaller museums, regional museums mm -hmm. are interested mm -hmm. because they never have they never would have access to examples of a certain type of work. Right. You know, you start with where people taught. You start with things like where they went to school. Where they went to school, yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, and in other cases, you know, what we look at, suggest is libraries, hospitals, mm -hmm. so on and so forth. You know, all would be happy to receive right works. Right. So right, the right. Th stuff doesn't end up in a dumpster. Okay. On the other side, you artists becoming, you know, empowering themselves. Artist Legacy Foundation, which was founded by Squeak Carnmouth and Viola Fry. Mm -hmm. I mean, Squeak is still alive. She's working. She's mm -hmm. out in San Francisco, but she was very concerned about what's going to happen to her work. She's a very prolific artist, but the marketplace isn't responding to that, to right. what she's doing. But she wanted to secure her own legacy and started her own foundation. And when she, when Viola learned that this foundation was being developed, she's like, I want in too. Right. And so they got together, and, and now they actually offer a, a grant each year, one yep. grant to yep. an emerging artist, mm -hmm. working artist. And then it was just reported in The Guardian yesterday, this fantastic, I, I would love to go to this place, a Joan Charlie, Char Charlinley, is uh, a weaver. Mm -hmm. She, in her will, she was pretty sure that her work was not going to be saved, and she deeded her Georgian house to yeah. her neighbors who were both artists to, to d develop an artist like an artist institute or an artist residency space or residency something, yeah. something. Wow. and that was in the UK that was, was in that? the UK oh wow so so people are being creative with the ways do you have any other creative ways you've seen sort of artists deal with their estates maybe Saul I'll, I'll push that over to you 
We're working with a group of photographers right now to create a foundation, a multi-estate foundation, because photographers tend not to have the type of money that painters and sculptors end up with. And the foundation will be literally set up to preserve their archives. Oh, wow. So what's that going to look like? Because, I mean, I'm guessing in perpetuity, you can't just set up a foundation that, like, guaranteed that there'll always be money there to preserve well, part, it. Well, part of it is the funding of it. Part of it's the endowment from the estates. Mm-hmm. Part of it's the sale of works. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons for the foundation would be to have photographs that would be the model photograph against which all future reproductions will be judged. It protects the copyright. It deals with the licensing, so on and so forth. So slowly building that foundation with a number of photographers, all of a certain generation of the generation of the 70s, because photographers of the 70s are literally the photographers who made the transition from analog to digital. And with that, a good number of photographers went from being photographers to being media artists. Now, I want to talk a little bit, because we're talking about archives. So, Jason, I think this question is for you, too. Specifically, I wanted to ask you this question, I should say. Now, I'm dealing with a friend who passed away a few years ago and seeing the fact that her archive sort of ends around 2002, or at least the majority of, like, the correspondence, because things went to email. And you know what? Even I've lost so many email addresses and stuff in my email. Like... How are we going to deal with this? Or how do you deal with the fact that we have a whole like decades now of correspondence that historically were in archives and now is in people's inboxes that sometimes get lost, deleted, aren't going to exist anymore? I mean, you're talking about electronic communication earlier. Mm -hmm. You know, if a Facebook message saying, sure, you can show that in my exhibition, but you know, Good luck finding that in the future. Yeah, as far as I'm able to tell in the research that I've done, the technology exists where you can compile, where all of that information can be lumped mm-hmm. into some sort of backup system. I mean, I'm speaking very rudimentary here. Right. It's just lumped. Whether it can be prop and wait for the time for it to be properly sorted. That's the kind of yes. that's kind of where we are right now. Everyone is moving paperless which is a great phenomenal way to be thinking i do feel like you know those important emails where your dealer says i'm going to take these eight paintings to art basel or i'm going to take these eight paintings to california with me and you don't have a consignment then you should probably print that out and put it in a little and put it somewhere and what i advise artists to do anyway i mean even even with their exhibition histories or with the things that they're interested in or somebody writes them a letter you know part of Prague, you're really you were part of the Bushwick scene yep. very early on. With you, absolutely. And the apartment gallery that we ran, Norte Mar, the yep. nonprofit. You know, it was really important to me early on to realize, and I'm not an artist, I'm more of an archivist. That kind of that kind of and a leaning, curator. yes, and a curator. Of, yeah, that too. But I learned really early on that we were moving pretty quickly away from these galleries being or these these little pop up spaces you know, moving to digital. Right. And so I just had a box in the corner just said Bushwick. And every time I got something that was interesting handed to me or I was down to the coffee shop for someone who did like a handmade thing, I just threw it in my box. Oh, wow. To try to sort of preserve that kind of a community. And I like the ephemera. And the ephemera. And I feel like that's great advice for an artist. Put a box in the studio, date it, you know, 2019, you get a letter from somebody or you see something that you like on the street or anything like, you know, anything that's an idea that can live beyond you and help support your archive, you just throw it in there. When the box gets full, you put the end date on it. 
And if you have storage Banker, space. Banker's boxes. I know, but even then, you Buy know. Buy stock in banker boxes. That's right. That's right. That's right. But then some of those consignments and stuff now are text message. I mean, it's not even an email. I know. Do you know? You it's gotta like move, you gotta move so to much is going I, to I, text message and other things like that. the formality. <laughs> You've got to stick to the formality. Or Instagram messages or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know? I get in, invoices are all happening just in F, you know, a PDF. Right. Very rarely do a lot of the contracts that we work with are paper, hard copy stuff. But, you know, when we're dealing with an artist's legacy, we protect all of that if we're involved right. with it. I mean, So, Saul, how do you deal with the correspondence and the archive issue with that? Because, I mean, I do think nowadays so many, particularly young artists, everything's on text message or everything is like on some other kind of electronic format that frankly doesn't archive. Once again, you know, in terms of giving advice and when we talk to younger artists and say, this has to become part of your studio practice. You get them out of the habit of text messaging a contract. <laughs> right, right. So everyone listening to this should know that. Like, you know, do not text message a contract or approval for contracts right. or things like that. Make sure you have a paper or some sort right. of electronic trail. And, you know, we have people sign paper contracts when, right. when they're hiring us on it. So it goes into a file and they, and it's like, Right. You sign this and it's, you know, the computer goes down and we no longer have any proof of our commitment. We spoke to people at Emory. Emory uh, University is buying up huge amounts of archives. Oh, really? Mainly African-American, but they have two different departments there. And we were talking to them literally exactly about this this problem. And, you know, one of the ways they're solving it is they're looking at ideas about living archives, where literally at the end of the year, you take somebody's archive and and they're still alive. And at the end of the year, that person makes a deposit into their archive. So so it's like, what do you want to have a record of this year? You're going to do your income tax and then you're going to deposit in your archive. Right, right. So now talking about that, so Emory University, who are all the, some of the other institutions doing interesting things in terms of preserving legacies or accepting archives? Is there anybody you, you'd like to well, sort of shout out? Well, the Smithsonian's the biggest right. deposit of archives and the American- Archives of the American art? Yeah. They're, they're huge, of course. Yeah. But they can be very selective. Right. And sometimes they don't want to take the whole thing. Sometimes they want to take this correspondence or this oh, so they cherry this pick decade. That. They cherry pick it. Yeah. I wouldn't say cherry pick. Mm. I would say they're discerned. Uh, <laughs> oh God, Jason, come on. You know. We could okay, call it yes, pick. you're right. I mean <laughs> but they see that you know, it, there's limited space and they see how that might dovetail in with a certain aspect of another part of the right. archive. Right, right. You right. know, so that's another thing that people need to think about, you know, when estates need to think about or an artist needs to think about along with their intent. Like I want this amount of my archive to go here or I want this archive to go there. You know, we were very strategic with Jack Twerkoff. I mean, there were a lot of institutions that were wanted to buy that archive. Mm. It's very rich with letters to Kooning, Klein. You know, it's it's a phenomenal experience to hand handle a letter by mm. Franz Klein. But we wanted it to remain on the East Coast and we wanted it to be fully accessible. We also were concerned about it being digitized. And that was so, in, so that get- was in 2009 when digitization so guessing, was, you yeah. know, Getting funding for digitization. Yes, that, that. (laughs) You know, it's not a glamorous thing to go ask a philanthropist, can you give us money to digitize this file? Right. You know, now archives are really hot. 
people are out there trying to find and find archives and and acquire them for research purposes and also to bolster up what their institutions might be. So who do you think is doing some of the interesting work in that? Um, I want to remember his name. But I, and well, I'm, I'm thinking more can, institutions rather than individuals. I am thinking of an institution. Oh, okay. Got I'm it. thinking of an institution okay. in a very, very community-oriented ah. kind of way. There's a young guy in Durham who's who's studying um, Durham, North Carolina. North North Carolina. He's studying library sciences, mm-hmm. and he figured out kind of what Saul was talking about. Okay, there's this disconnect between an artist and their archives, right? So what if I develop a program where I can introduce an artist to their local library. Oh, wow. And so over the course of, I think it was two years, 2015 to 2017, they worked with this local library in Durham mm-hmm. and introduced it to the artists, and the local library helped build this archive of the artists. Wow. And so it's a local artist, it's a local institution, which is their local library. Mm-hmm. And I think, think that sometimes that is a really w- fantastic way to think. Mm. I mean, we're, because the archives have become valuable, you know, there are big institutions that want to pay for them. And I think that's a good way if an estate needs to or an artist needs to find, a, find revenue or generate revenue, then they can go that route. But on another side, you know, trying to, it's all about the context is what, you know, Solid also said. You're kind of contextualizing the artists in, within, their, within their neighborhoods, within their right. communities. There's one last story from my conversation with Saul and Jason I want to share. It points to the empty holes that remain in the story of any artist. On a personal note, yeah. I think that Elizabeth Murray, everyone, is pretty solid about her trajectory as an artist, right? right? Very um, well known. She very has. well known. She's had. She was one of five women, four women, to have retrospectives at the Museum of Modern Art in 2007. Right. 2005, I'm sorry. She died in 2007. And her entire exhibition history sort of starts around, until I got on the scene, until around like 75 was, mm-hmm. you know, her one-person show. I was up in what I call the bat attic upstate, and I found a little box. And inside this box are slides, little tiny, those yeah, little things that probably just yeah. slides with documentation of the size and the dates of all and where the paintings were made. Wow. And these were dated in the 62s, 63, 64. More research leads to the fact that she had, when was her graduate show? She graduated Mills. Where was that? We found out that it was at this little gallery. She also showed before she left, and she went to Buffalo. And then we did a little more research into Buffalo, and she had another show there. So this kind of archival documentation, not only do we get to see what she made, and on our website, I I do a really great, I think it's a fantastic write-up about the discovery and the value Mm -hmm. of those early works. None of them exist anymore because they were six feet by nine feet. Ooh. And so, or we don't know where they are. Right. They, maybe they exist, but she wasn't going to travel not. those things from right. the West Coast to the East Coast. But it kind of resets. So there's a garage maybe in the West Coast somewhere <laughs> where these giant calling, paintings exist. Calling, yes. But I mean, it resets her whole trajectory of an artist. It brings her 10 years, an entire decade earlier. Wow. So, you know, it's an interesting what one little tiny piece of documentation can do. It's nice to be reminded that archives can be windows into the unknown and the unknowable. 
Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jason Andrew, who's a partner at Artist Estate Studios. And their website, for those who are interested, is artistestatestudios.com. And with Saul Ostro, who's a critic, curator, and principal at Art Legacy Planning. And their website is art-legacy.com. A special thanks to Twig Twig for providing the music to this week's episode. I'm Harag Vartanyan, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening to the April 4th, 2019 edition of Art Movements, and enjoy your week. <laughs>